Zechariah, second to last book of the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, we have extras at the back. We almost finished our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of this mysterious book. And it's a short chapter tonight, only nine verses. Verse 1. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. That is, for the cleansing of sin and uncleanness. That's a prophecy of the coming of Jesus. And when he died, he filled up a fountain, as it were, with his blood. That is the source of a great hymn that's one of my favorites by the great William Cooper 300 years ago. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood wash all their filthy stains. Amen? And it's only Christ's blood. This is a fountain. By the way, a fountain isn't like a Simply a pool that sits there and could get stagnant or dry up. A fountain is like a spring. In fact, some translations translate this a spring. In other words, it's always coming up and out. And that's the way it is with Christ's blood. It never runs dry. It's always fresh. And we need it. Isn't there a song, What Can Wash Away My Sins? Someone tell me. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We need it. First John 1 7 says the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from some sin. No, from all sin. And then in verse 9 of that chapter, it says, If we confess our sins, He is just and faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us, it washes us. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and 12 mention a list of just terrible, filthy sins. Being a thief, a murderer, homosexual, immoral. And it says, but you were washed. Thank God for the washing of the blood of Christ. Wash away all sins. Isaiah 1, 18, come let us reason together, though your sins be as blood red as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. All of them. Revelation 1, 5 and 6 that Micah read this morning during the service. It says, you know, thanks be to God and to his son who has washed us from our sins in his blood. Now this harks back to something we looked at previous week. Zechariah 12, 10. Another prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus, and it's quoted twice in the New Testament. It says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. He was pierced at the cross, nails in his hands, in his feet, sword in his side, but especially the sword in his side. John 19 quotes Zechariah 12, 10 and says that when the sword went in, out came blood and water, and that's filling up this fountain filled with blood for the cleansing of sin. Now the verse here says that this is for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, but actually it's for all believers, Jew or Gentile, and it's sufficient for all mankind. Thank God that the blood of Christ has infinite value, and it's permanent, and it's greater than our sins. Thank God that a fountain was opened for us. Verse 2, it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, 
that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. They shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned and were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, there have always been idols and false prophets. Of course, God has had his true way of worshiping and true prophets, but they've continued. However, interesting, this is a prophecy um, after they came back from the Babylonian captivity and the Jews came back to the land. Most of them really learned their lesson and did not go back to idolatry. It was idolatry that got them thrown into captivity over in Babylon and all that long parade of prophets saying, give up your idols and worship the one true God or you're going into slavery under the Babylonians. And they didn't give up their idols, so off they went. But when they came back, there's very few records of any more idolatry amongst Israel. So when Jesus came along, he didn't have to go after the idols. There were none. And so that's part of the fulfillment of this. But then the day is going to come when God will abolish all idols and all false prophets because there still is idolatry in the world. And it's not simply worshiping a stump of wood that's carved to look like somebody. An idol is simply anything that takes the place of God in our heart. Our money, our car, our spouse, our children. I remember six months after I became a Christian, there was an informal service at the church I was attending. And uh, Henry Shepherd, a very godly older man, said, There's, you know what the number one idol is in the world? And he stood up on a chair and it said, it's us. I'll never forget that. And we all said, amen, Brother Henry. We're our own number one idol. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. He is jealous with the holy jealousy. And God says, one day there'll be no idols. He says, also, no more false prophets. When? All the preachers and prophets and prophetesses of false religions are false. They're liars. The Bible condemns them. And so they're all around the world today. And just look around at the false religions. And those false religions are basically idolatrous. So it says, one day it's all going to be abolished. When? Second coming of Jesus. Many prophecies there. And punish his enemies, reward and rescue his people, destroy the idols. There'll be no more idols after that. No more false prophets. The false prophets will all be rounded up and put in hell. And so this is a great promise of the future. So there have always been these. By the way, let me throw this in. Talking about idols and false prophets, that tells us where the, one of the key arenas of spiritual warfare is. There's some strange views people have that border on superstition about demons hanging around graveyards and territorial spirits. But uh, the two main arenas of spiritual warfare between Christians and the evil spirits, number one is in the mind. Look that up in 2 Corinthians 10. Uh, the thoughts... Um, and it says, cast down every evil thought that raises itself up against Christ. But then also in the realm of pagan religions and superstition. That's where the evil spirits promote false religion and idolatry. And they raise up their false prophets. So think about that. The warfare between true Christianity and all false religions. Islam, Hinduism, Jainism and a long string of other ones, Buddhism, Hinduism, 
That is spiritual warfare. Um, our missionaries to the Middle East will say, Amen and Amen. When they witness to Muslims and others, they say, it's like there's a spirit there. And they think, well, that's Allah, but according to the Bible, the false gods of the false religions are actually demons in disguise. And so you try to witness to someone that's in that religion, that demon does not want to let go, and there's spiritual warfare. Remember that when you witness to certain people. But God says, one day I'm going to abolish all of this. He says also the, the unclean spirit. Who or what is that? Well, that's talking about demons, because that phrase is used in the New Testament to refer to demons. What are demons? Fallen angels, evil spirits. They're not the ghosts of dead people. These are started off as good angels. They were thrown out of heaven when they sinned. Some were in hell, some were lurking around earth, even inhabiting certain people. It's called demon possession, but they are involved in idolatry and false religion and immorality and so many sin systems in the world. And it says they're unclean because they're they're filthy, they're, they're not holy. And it says here, God's going to do away with them at the second coming. Now get ready to say amen. He's not only going to rescue us and punish unrepentant sinners, he's going to take the devil and all the demons and throw them into hell. Say amen. That's one of my, I look forward to that. The book of Revelation says they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire permanently. So he's going to abolish the unclean spirit, including Satan, who is the unclean spirit. Verse 3, it shall come to pass that anyone that still prophesies, <clears throat> then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, you shall not live. In other words, these are the false prophets, because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. His father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. Now remember, that's addressed to Jews, and in Old Testament Israel, God had strict laws. Any Jew that engages in idolatry or being a false prophet, death penalty, capital punishment. Now, we are not in the Old Testament theocracy as a special city, state, or church state. Capital punishment is around for other things, but one day God is going to execute capital punishment himself. And not just on idolatry and false prophets, but all unrepentant sinners, whatever it is. Now, we've seen before that uh, the prophets had a certain pattern. And I was noticing that in my devotions this morning, reading through Jeremiah, that God condemns the false religions and the idols and so forth. And then he sternly punishes his people. And then he promises to bless his people. And God always keeps his promises. It says here that there will, you know, these false prophets will be ashamed and even their father and mother will say, thrust them through. Because in the Old Testament, when certain crimes were committed, they had to be testified against by the nearest of kin who actually, this is going to surprise you, had to take part in the execution. Imagine. You had a grown son that was worshiping an idol or guilty of murder, and parents had to say, yes, that's our son that did that. And that the elders of Israel said, okay, you're the first ones. They'll have to help stone them. That was very severe. That was in the Old Covenant. Things have, to some extent, changed now. 
Okay, the next few verses, 4 to 6. Again, the idea of the false prophets. And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They'll not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I'm a farmer. For a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. One will say to him, well, what are these wounds between your arms? He will answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. False prophets will be exposed and will be ashamed at judgment day. That's the ultimate fulfillment of this. Now, during times of revival and so forth, sometimes a person gets converted and says, I was a false prophet, I was a phony, I was no good. And they're ashamed of that. We're always ashamed of our sins before, uh, the sins we commit before we become Christians. But again, you fast forward, this is ultimately fulfilled at judgment day. They have no excuse. They can't say, well, you misunderstood me. God says, I don't misunderstand anybody. I was there and I heard you prophesy. What does it say? They prophesied lies. And so they'll be ashamed. They'll have no excuse whatsoever. Now, what does this mean in verse 4? That they will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. Now, this isn't talking about the medieval monks in the Catholic Church that wore, you know, they wore a robe made out of horse hair. I don't know if you know anything about horse hair. It's very... Uh, it's like wearing burlap, you know, you, you put potatoes in a sack, it scratches and everything. They say, well, we're doing penance. Well, the Bible doesn't tell them to do that. But what's this robe of coarse hair? They're probably imitating who? Elijah. Elijah wore this coarse garment and he ate food out from out there in the desert and he had a long beard and long hair. He wasn't a fanatic, he was just sort of... Um, uh, a dangerous prophet. But Elijah was known, and then John the Baptist was like that too. And so they said, well, you remember that account in the Old Testament? Uh, a man says, you know, I met someone that prophesied. And the other guy says, well, who was it? Well, he, he, he was dressed with this coarse thing, and he had a long beard. And he said, oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. So these false prophets are imitating them. Well, if we can dress like Elijah, people will believe us and give us the money. Same thing with John the Baptist. They are what Jesus opposed as wolves in sheep's clothing. Notice the idea of clothing. They're trying to look like this. Now, how do we do that today? These principles apply. They don't walk around. Well, actually, some do wear unusual clothing. Um, certain Catholic priests. I told you once before that every few months I get a catalog in the mail selling stuff that are Catholic stuff. You, you, you would hardly believe what's in And they sell these certain garments made of scratchy clothes. And they, they, they sell these other things. It's kind of like a necklace. It's really like a strand of barbed wire cutting into their flesh. And they say, well, cause pain and I'll atone for my sin. And, and they even sell what they call holy whips to whip yourself and the blood will atone for your sin. But they sell some of these garments of coarse hair. And they say, you're extra holy if you wear sandals rather than shoes. Oh, and then the discalced Carmelites say, we don't even wear sandals. We'll just go barefoot even in winter. And they say, by punishing ourselves, we're earning merit from God. No. Other ones won't go that far. They won't wear the coarse hair, but they'll wear some other holy garment. Clerical collars. 
with gold chains with a big, huge crucifix and funny-looking hats that look like the head of a fish. You know I'm talking about the Catholic bishops. The Greek Orthodox with their square hats and all this. And some people fall for that. They say, oh, he must be a holy man. Look how he's dressed. Remember when I lived in Dallas in a very small apartment in a very poor neighborhood. And I was sitting around one day and I wasn't dressed in a coat and tie, but I was selling books on the side and a knock came on the door, opened it up. And there was a man dressed like this. He was the bishop of a certain Coptic Orthodox church and he wanted to buy some books. And I said, well, come on in. But I was not impressed by that outfit that he put on any more than these people that that say I'm wearing this robe of coarse hair to deceive. And that's what it is, pretending that somehow this garment makes them look more holy. Now that's not the same as a preacher that wears a coat and tie out of respect for God, but you won't see me with a long gown and, you know, a turned around collar and these other things. Now, I need to explain Verse 6, oh, quickly, verse 5, this man's going to confess, I'm not really a prophet, I'm just a farmer, and someone taught me how to keep cattle. Maybe his name was Andrus, teaching how to be a cattleman. But verse 6 is often misunderstood and misapplied to Jesus. I've heard people preach on this, where they say, they'll ask Jesus, what are these wounds that you have in your arms, or some translate this, in your hands, and he'll say, I was wounded in the house of my friends. It's not talking about Jesus. Look at the context. One will say to him, whom? This false prophet that is admitting he was a false prophet and that he wore this silly robe to deceive people. So they said, well, what are these wounds that you have in your hands? So false prophet is confessing that he made the wounds in the house of his friends to deceive people. How would you deceive him by putting wounds in your hands? It's not talking about crucifixion. He's counterfeiting the true wounds that true prophets had because they were persecuted and beaten and whipped and that had true wounds. I'll give you an example. Well, our our brother from the Middle East could give you Dozens, if not hundreds of examples of Christians that are former Muslims that were beaten and they had the wounds to show it. Some of you all have heard of the great Richard Wormbrand. Hands up, anybody heard of him? He wrote that wonderful book, Tortured for Christ. He, back in the 1950s and early 60s, he was a, a very godly uh, pastor in Romania and he was arrested, spent 14 years in a communist prison, being beaten and tortured virtually every day for 14 years. Imagine that. And then there was like a prisoner swap, and he came here, the intervention of some Swedish diplomats, came to America, started the ministry. I had the privilege of meeting him, but uh, look this up online. Interesting thing. He was called to testify in Congress about the persecution of Christians in Eastern Europe that was dominated by communism. Of course, some of the liberals would say, well, they're not persecuted. That's a lot of propaganda. And so they interviewed him, and he said, I was tortured like this with hot irons and whips and all that. And some of them said, oh, we don't know if we can believe you. He stood up, tore his coat and his shirt off, turned around and said, how do you explain this on my back? These whips, he says, all these scars with hot irons on my chest. And they were dumbfounded. Brethren, we have brethren that have the true marks of being a godly person. 
But these false prophets imitate that. For example, there's another thing. I don't know how much you know about Roman Catholicism. Anybody ever heard of the stigmata? There's a few hands. Stigmata, it first started with Francis of Assisi, what, 600 years ago over in Italy. And there have been others over the centuries that claim to have the wounds of Christ in their hands. And they show up on Good Friday and sometimes even wounds on their feet and wound on their side and on their head. And they say, this is a miracle that shows that God blesses us and we're extra holy. No, I don't believe that. Either they did it themselves or it's a satanic counterfeit, but it's not the true thing. Anyway, there are these people that finally fess up and say, these wounds, I was wounded in the house of my friends. It's, it's, it's phony. By the way, something else, what about these wounds? There are two or three other places in the Bible where pagan religions did wound themselves, and so these are false prophets that are like the pagans. One of them, come on now, who preached a couple of weeks ago about Elijah, Mount Carmel, and what were the Baal prophets doing? Dancing around and cutting themselves. That was part of Baal worship, that they'd dance and work themselves into a big frenzy, and they'd pull out knives and start cutting themselves and the blood on the altar and thinking that this was holy, but cutting themselves, as it says here, wounding themselves. Then there's an example in the New Testament, which you all know, that wild Gadarene demoniac that came down from the mountains naked and came threatening Jesus. And it said that nobody could hold him, and he was always out there screaming, cutting himself with stones, probably involved in some occult rituals like the Baal prophets. And there are other things like that. Some of the pagan religions had religious tattoos, for example. That's why God said to his people, no tattoos. This is indirectly related to another phenomenon, even though we don't meet many people today that literally cut themselves in a worship service. I guess the closest would be what I said about those Catholics. Well, let me address that. Roman Catholic monks today will still whip themselves and wear that little thing around their neck, the scapular, thinking that this atones for their sin. It doesn't. Martin Luther did that before he became a Christian. He was a monk. He'd whip himself, and sometimes they'd find him passed out on the floor. What's behind that? Some people get such a feeling of guilt, they have to punish themselves to atone, but it's wrong. This is indirectly related to another phenomenon today that sometimes... Teenagers and young adults do. Have you ever heard of cutting? Cutting. We have a booklet out there. When a person is really mixed up and overwhelmed with guilt, and they'll start cutting themselves. And um, psychologically and subconsciously, it's like, I'm so bad, I need to punish myself and draw blood. I'll tell you a story that I've told once or twice here before when I studied overseas. And actually, Jeff was in the same town. I remember just outside the little Baptist church there, there was a young lady that occasionally came around. She was so mixed up. Poor girl. She was about 21, I guess. And she'd occasionally come to church and weep and say silly things. So I still remember I was outside the church talking to her and telling her about the love of Jesus. And she reached in her pocket and broke out, brought out a piece of broken glass. I think it's from like a Coke bottle. And she took it and started cutting herself. Right there in front of me. And the blood, what would you do? 
I grabbed her hands and I said, stop that. You don't, she said, I'm so guilty, I have to cut myself and draw the blood. And I said, you don't have to do that. Someone else was cut for you. Jesus at the cross was cut in his hands and in his feet. He shed blood to forgive your sins, young lady. You don't have to cut yourself. You don't have to be a monk whipping yourself or these other things. Totally unnecessary. This idea of this false prophet wounding himself was Satan's counterfeit of Christ's wounds that were made by humans that he loved. In the house of his friends, he loved the Jews. So you see, this is a counterfeit of the real thing. Jesus was wounded in Jerusalem, actually just outside of Jerusalem. Verse 7 now. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. This is another great prophecy of Jesus. We call that a messianic prophecy. Uh, There are many of them. I hope you could name some. Years ago, I did a series of about six or seven messages on the prophecies of the coming of Jesus. And here's another one here. There are a bunch of them in Zechariah. You could call this the gospel according to Zechariah. So it says here, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. That's Jesus. John 10 said, he said, I am the good shepherd. And he's called a shepherd earlier in this book. Notice he also says, against the man who is my companion. You say, well, what's the significance of that? The word companion there means friend who is equal to you. How can any man be equal to God? I wonder what the Jews thought of this before Jesus came. You know, those rabbis wrote a number of books before the time of the New Testament. They tried to interpret some of these. And some of them would say, yes, this is a prophecy of Messiah. How can he be a man and be equal to God? Well, we know the answer. He's the son of God that became a man. He's the God-man. So he's a man and he's equal with God because the Bible says he is equal. It says that in the Gospel of John and also in Philippians. My companion. So this is a proof of the deity of Christ. So it says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man who is my companion. It's the same person. Strike him. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Strike the shepherd because he's the leader of this sheep. And it's kind of like the idea, I can speak from experience. Josh, if you ever go rattlesnake hunting, how do you kill it? You've got to kill the head. I've sent a lot of rattlesnakes to the promised land at the Daniel Ranch back in Texas. I killed a lot of rattlesnakes, copperheads, water moxes. You didn't know your pastor used to do that. But you have to kill them on the head. To go after the sheep, you go after the shepherd. Same thing in war. They used to say in warfare, the war ain't over, it ain't over till the fat man swings. You know what that means. World War II wasn't over until Hitler and Hirohito were either dead or surrendered. Now this verse is actually quoted in the New Testament directly applied to the Lord Jesus. Did you know that? Matthew 26, 31. Jesus was praying in Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. And where were his apostles? They were sleeping. So Jesus comes and wakes them up and says, come on, wake up. Here come the Jews and the Romans. They got swords, they got ropes. He even says they got cudgels. That was like a baseball bat. 
maybe even bows and arrows. And then Jesus quotes this. says, they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. They arrested Jesus. And what happened to the apostles? They ran into the night like scared jackrabbits. They were scattered. Another thing, if you know your Bible, strike the shepherd. Striking Jesus, the idea of striking. Remember? Wilderness, no water. God said to Moses, strike that big rock, water will come out. When Jesus was struck, blood and water came out, a fountain that was filled with blood. And it says the sheep will be scattered, and that has multiple applications. For example, Israel was scattered in the exile, and then later at the dispersion, and then later regathered. Now here's something else serious in this verse. It says, I will turn my hand against the little ones. Little ones is a Jewish way of saying the little children. They will even be punished if they die in their sins. That's a serious thing when unbelieving children are held accountable to God. If they're old enough to know what they're doing, they're guilty before God. We need to tell them the gospel. Think of it also like this. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd was struck and killed for the sheep to protect them from Satan's wolves. Strike the shepherd. The man who is my companion and the sheep will be scattered, but also they'll be regathered. Those apostles came back, met with Jesus. The Jews were scattered. They later came back to the land. Verse 8 now. shall come to pass in the land, says the Lord, that that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. Each one will say, the Lord is my God. So that's the regathering and the blessing of Israel. What's this about one-third and two-thirds? Well, we see similar proportions in the book of Revelation. We preached through Revelation a couple years ago, and on one occasion it says like one-third of the world's population will die. Wow, think about that. And yet in Revelation it says with all those plagues and deaths and disasters, it says they still did not repent of what? Their idolatry and their immorality. So punishment does not necessarily bring about repentance. Conviction may. And it says here, two-thirds shall be cut off and die. Now that happened in some of the devastations of Israel, for example. This was what I was reading in Zechariah this morning while I was eating my cornflakes at breakfast. And uh, there is Zechariah, who had been rescued from that miry pit, And he goes right back to the king and says, King, they're going to drag you off to Babylon. And what about the rest of the people? Most of them will either die or be dragged off as slaves. Most. But not all. There would be a remnant. The poor people that were left to take care of the land. In other words, the one-third as opposed to the two-thirds. That's an interesting pattern. But the ultimate fulfillment is... This worldwide devastation, and it's not just two-thirds, but everybody. Now, the proportion here could be construed like one-third are God's people. That's indicated in verse 9. And the two-thirds are those that are not God's people. What happens at the second coming of Jesus? 
his people would be that smaller minority that are rescued. And the rest of them, the two-thirds of the vast majority, whatever the proportion is, they die at the Battle of Armageddon, which will be the worst war in all history. You know, at the end of World War I, Woodrow Wilson said that was the war to end all wars, and they laughed at that when World War II began, which was the worst war in all history, worse than all the other ones put together. I don't know if there's going to be a World War III, four, or 26, but we do know there will be the battle and the war that will end all wars, what? Battle of Armageddon. And Jesus puts an end to all warfare when he steps in and says, I'm taking charge. Punishes his enemies. God's people are always in the minority, as it says here, the one-third. But notice also, in conclusion, verse 9, I'll bring them through the fire. Remember, there's that verse in Isaiah, when you go through the water, when you go through the fire, I'll be with you. Don't fear. I will refine them as silver is refined. Test them as gold is tested. God refines his people through persecution. It's good for them. It's just like a parent spanking the children. It's good for them because it loves them and shows love and teaches them not to do wrong. And God does that with his people, his children, Hebrews 12 says. Does it for our good. But God says here, I'm going to refine Israel and get rid of the false prophets and the idols. And it's going to purify Israel. And that will be ultimately fulfilled in Romans 11, talking about a great revival of Jews in the latter days. But God refines his people by persecution. Even fiery persecution. Will God have to do that to America? To put an end to the great gross evil that's getting worse every single day. This is also alluded to in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. How God refines each of his people. You and me, brethren. Says God puts us in the fire, in the crucible and heats it up. Separates the gold from the slag. Doesn't, Doesn't feel good to be in the fire, but... It's good for us. And it says he'll refine them as silver is refined and as gold is tested. I actually saw this once. A good friend of mine uh, lived in Mobile, Alabama, and he worked on railroads. And he also made gold jewelry and sold them at flea markets and places like that. And he says, girl, let me show you something. So he got a little something and put a very hot burner underneath it. And this um, thing on top, he said, now that's the crucible. And he says, I'll take some just raw gold ore and put it in there and just watch it. After a few minutes, it heated up, and guess what? The gold melted, and that extra rock and slag just flowed up to the top, and he got a little spoon and skimmed it off. And he says, now look at that. That's 100% pure gold. I don't know, 18 carat or whatever. He says, now look at it closely. It's like a mirror. You can see your own reflection. And he was right. You see the application? God wants to purify us by bringing us into tough times. Health problems, financial problems, family problems, whatever. He's in charge. He's the one that turns it up to scrape away the the bad parts of us so that he can see his own image in us. God refines us for our good and for his glory. It concludes tonight with this great covenantal promise that's repeated over and over again in the Bible. This is my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. That's God's great promise. You find it to Abraham, to Jacob. It's even in the new covenant. What's the great covenant? I will be your God, you will be my people. 
Therefore, don't worship other gods. I'm your God, and you're my people that I love. And that's the promise God gives here. Well, that's our lesson, and God willing, we'll conclude Zechariah next Sunday night. You may want to read ahead. Shall we pray? Father, you have given us more promises of the first and second coming of Jesus. And though you speak sternly, you also speak comfortedly, comfortably with these promises to your people. Thank you that you are our God and we are your people. In Jesus' holy name, amen.